as we come to the verses that we read together today, verses 18 through 29, we see the author uh, doing what he's done already uh, several times in the epistle, uh, but he's coming back around to uh, showing the supremacy of Christ, the superiority of Christ to everything that preceded him and, and not only showing the supremacy of Christ in, in his person, but also showing um, the supremacy of his work and how the work of Christ in establishing the new covenant far surpasses anything that had previously been. Now, remember, these people that he's writing to initially, they are, they're thinking that it would be better for them to... Uh, go back to where they had come from. So they had come from uh, life in Judaism. They had come from uh, involvement in the the temple worship and all of the ritual and ceremony that went along with that. Uh, They had come from uh, being very secure in and embraced by their fellow countrymen there in that that Jewish community. They they had come from all of that. And now they're in, in a bit of a, Um, an outside position because they put their faith in Jesus. So they've been a bit ostracized. And so as is often the case in looking back uh, and and sort of longing for better days, they're, they're failing to see the reality of what was back there. Uh, They're, they're, they're looking at the Mosaic covenant as, um, well, they're kind of looking at it with, you know, as we would say, rose-colored lenses. You know, they're looking at it uh, in a way that they really, if they were looking clearly and carefully, they would realize, no, this isn't anything we want to go back to. And so here what the author does is he, in verse 18, he reminds them of the nature of that covenant that they're sort of longing for. And notice what he says about it. He says, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded and if so much as a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow and so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. He's saying, look, remember, before you make the decision, the final decision to go back, remember what you're going back to. It's not what you think it is. It's not a place where there's security. It's not a place where there's comfort. It's not a place where you can just rest and say, oh, everything's going to be okay. He says, no, the the covenant itself, when it was established, it was established Uh, to communicate to us the severity of sin and to warn us against breaking God's laws and to strike fear into the heart of man. That's what you're thinking about going to, back to. You're going to go back to a system that really has uh, no comfort and it has no hope unless you've been able to perfectly keep the law, which, of course, nobody was able to do. So they had forgotten that the, the covenant through Moses was, as Paul would refer to it, it was really the ministration of death. 
That's how Paul refers to it. It was the ministration of death. It was written not on the heart of man, but it was written and engraved in stone. And it promised not blessing. Well, it promised blessing if you could keep it perfectly always. But if you couldn't, it promised nothing but curses. So he's really, he's contrasting what was offered through the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, with what Jesus has brought us um, with the new covenant. And we ourselves uh, can never forget that the only way a person is saved is by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And if a person is not saved that way, a person will never be saved. There is no Uh, There is no other means of being saved. There are no works that one can do to save themselves. There is no other religious system that offers uh, an acceptable road uh, from God's perspective to salvation. It can only come through faith in Christ. Now, what what the author does here in verses 18 through um, 21 is he actually goes back and he's pretty much describing exactly what's written in Exodus chapter 19. If you go back yourself and you read the 19th chapter of Exodus, uh, it's, it's the backdrop for the giving of the Ten Commandments. The 20th chapter of Exodus is where we find the Ten Commandments given. But uh, the backdrop in, in chapter 19 is pictured for us there. And it's all of the things that he's talking about here. It is this... Um, this very, uh, as he describes it, blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words. It was a terrifying experience. And so he's reminding them, look, this is the reality of the old covenant. Is this really, you know, in a sense, he would be saying, is this really what you want to go back to? Because this is what you are going back to if you go back. But then he makes the contrast. In contrast to the Mosaic Covenant and the terrifying events surrounding the giving of the covenant at Sinai, we have come, he says, to Mount Zion. So all the way through the epistle, he's trying to get them to understand how much better things are now that they're believing in Jesus, even though maybe for the moment they're going through difficulty. They're going through suffering. They're going through trouble. And you know, we have to remember that too. Because sometimes when we are going through hard times, we're tempted to look back and we're tempted to think that, oh, you know, you know, it was pretty good back in those days before Christ. You know, I had a lot of things going for me. You know, it it wasn't all that bad. And we get tempted to think that, you know, maybe, maybe if I went back there, Um, things would be good. But the truth of the matter is no. Now, there's nothing back there to go to. And we're going to see in just a few minutes how there really was soon to be absolutely nothing for uh, them to go back to. But now, in contrast, he says that uh, we have come to Mount Zion. So in verses 22 through 24, here he's going to speak of the covenant through Christ and of the heavenly Jerusalem. But notice here in verse 22, he says, but you have come 
to Mount Zion. Now notice he says, you have come in the present tense. Now, of course, the truth is that they hadn't come in the fullest sense, just like we haven't uh, in the fullest sense experienced uh, all that God has intended for us. But, he, but what he's wanting to remind them of and what we need to remember too is that we are already presently the citizens of heaven. Uh, Paul tells us that many times over. He says Your, our, our citizenship is, is from heaven or our citizenship is in heaven from which we look for the Savior who's going to return. So right now, today, even though we haven't seen the, the fulfillment of all of the promises of God to us, they're, they're, they're guaranteed to us because of our citizenship. So we're citizens presently. He wants them to remember, you've come already. You, you haven't entered into the fullness of what awaits you. That will come, but you're already there. You're already an heir of this new kingdom that God is going to establish. And so it is true with us as well. Our citizenship is in heaven. And whatever earthly citizenship we have, uh, you know, in some cases that's uh, advantageous and we thank God for it. And, you know, maybe some people feel that their particular citizenship is, um, you know, puts them at a disadvantage. Whatever the case, uh, whatever our earthly citizenship is, we are citizens of the kingdom of Christ, and we are citizens now. And so I want you to notice now, he describes a place, and he not only describes a place, but he describes uh, those who are there presently uh, living in that place. And so he says, you have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion. If you go back in the Old Testament and you uh, look up every time Mount Zion appears or Zion appears, most of the time it's a reference to uh, Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem, uh, part, part of the mountain there where Jerusalem is, is uh, even today it's, it's referred to as Zion. But also, as you're looking through your Old Testament, you're going to find occasions where it's clear that the reference to Mount Zion is not speaking of the earthly Jerusalem, but it's speaking of the heavenly place, the place where God dwells. And that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about, um, when he says you've come to Mount Zion, he's talking about the fact that we've come, uh, like he said earlier, that we have access now with confidence before the throne of grace. Uh, we, we are citizens of uh, the heavenly city. We, we've come to... Um, not the, the earthly location of Zion, but we've come to what that was just a shadow of. We've come to Mount Zion itself, the dwelling place of God. Now, interestingly, the, the word Zion, in uh, my efforts to kind of get at the root of, you know, just what is the meaning of the word Zion, um, the best definition I could find for Zion is a sunny place. A sunny place or a bright place, or a shining place. Now, I, I think just even in the word itself, look at the contrast. He's talking about Mount Sinai. What? How does he describe Mount Sinai? He describes it burning with fire, 
blackness, darkness, and tempest, that's, that's what they're thinking about going back to. He says, no, don't go back there because you've come to a sunny place. You've come to a bright place. You've come to a shining place. And of course, the kingdom that we are going to receive ultimately in its fullest sense is a kingdom that is a kingdom of light and life. And it's full of uh, brightness as a sunny place would be. So you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God. When we think of heaven, as we, we commonly you know, make references to going to heaven or somebody having gone to heaven or will a person get to heaven, what are we, what are we talking about? What are we thinking of? I think a lot of times in our minds, we're, it's kind of fuzzy as to what we're talking about or thinking about. We're, you know, it's kind of, it's a little bit cloudy to us. It's a little bit mysterious. It's a little bit mystical. We don't think of it as having, you know, uh, substance sometimes like we can visualize or think of, you know, different places in the world. Uh, we almost think of it, you know, like you'd look at it, it would be sort of a transparent place, you know, you could kind of see it. But, but the fact of the matter is, heaven is a place. There's a city there. There's an actual city. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. And the book of Revelation in the latter chapters, especially the very end of the book, uh, actually gives us uh, quite a description of that city that is one day going to be the, the dwelling place for all of those who have loved and served the Lord. But, but even now, we become the, the citizens of that city. So when we talk about heaven, we're talking about not some place that's way, way out there in some corner of our material universe. You know, years ago, there was... Uh, you know, back in the days of the Soviet Union, they sent up a, you know, a cosmonaut is what they called them, like an astronaut. And uh, one of the things that he purportedly reported back was, you know, he hadn't been able to find God anywhere. And, uh, you know, out there in space, searching around, didn't see any evidence of God. And of course, at that time, it was an atheistic nation, so it was sort of atheistic propaganda. Um, but you know what? You could, you could span the entire universe and you wouldn't find God. You wouldn't arrive on his uh, doorstep and be able to get out of your spaceship and go, you know, pay him a visit because he's beyond the material universe. Heaven, the place of God's dwelling, is not part of the material universe. It's outside of it. It's beyond it. When the Bible speaks of heaven, sometimes it's talking about the atmosphere around us. Sometimes it's talking about where the, the, the planets and the stars are. And then there are times when it's talking about the dwelling place of God. Paul referred to it in writing to the Corinthians as he called it the third heaven. And he talked about being caught up into the third heaven. And what he meant by that was into the very presence of God. So the heavenly Jerusalem is a place, it's the city of the living God, it's the place where God's throne is, and it's outside of the material universe. It's, it's another dimension. 
And so it is a place though, and it's not only a place, but it's a place that's inhabited as he goes on to show us. But real quickly, Jerusalem means, in essence, Jerusalem means the city of peace. Some say it means the foundation of peace. Some say it means uh, the dwelling place of peace. Some say the house of peace. But the, but the idea is that it's the city of peace. Of course, we think of the, the words, if you're familiar at all with any kind of Hebrew, you know the word shalom means peace. Well, that's Salem is, is the word shalom. And so the heavenly city is the city of peace. Man longs for peace. We cry out for peace. Everybody has, you know, one theory or another about how to attain peace. God lives in the city of peace, and that city will always be what it is eternally, a city of peace. So it's a place, but it's a place that's inhabited by different beings First of all, there are there a, an innumerable company of angels. An innumerable company of angels. The book of Revelation, again, describes this a little bit where it talks about the, the multitudes that are gathered around God's throne, these angelic creatures. It says that there are 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's a way of describing uh, an innumerable amount. And so... There's an innumerable company of angels. And the picture here is that they're all gathered uh, and dressed in, in festive apparel. They're all there to celebrate the glory and the greatness of God. So heaven, the place where God dwells, is a place of constant celebration. It's a place of constant festivities in the best sense that you can imagine. I mean, you know, when you, you think of going to a festival of some sort. Oh, yeah, we're going to this festival and everybody's going to be there and we're going to just have a tremendous time. It's going to be so wonderful. We're all going to be together and we're all going to be, you know, doing whatever we do. Well, that that's what heaven's like. It's an exciting place. It's a festive place. And there's an innumerable company of angels who are uh, engaged in the festivities. But there's also the general assembly of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. And so this is a reference to the church. And every single person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ from the time of his resurrection, or even before, from the, from the time of his uh, death and resurrection to this day, every single person who has died is there. That's where they are. So when you think of your loved one, when you think of your parent or your child or your brother or your sister or your relative or your friend who knew Christ, who passed away, this is how you need to think of them they're not just floating around out there in outer space. You know, some people come up with the, the craziest images of what heaven is like. And, you know, people have actually said, well, I don't want to go to heaven. I mean, I don't want to float around on a cloud playing a harp forever. Well, whoever suggested that that would be the case in the first place? The only way you can come up with a picture like that of heaven is to uh, just come up with one that's not connected to the biblical uh, 
you know, understanding of things. According to the Bible, as we're looking right here, heaven is a place. And that's where those people are. That's where our loved ones are. They're, they're in the very presence of the angels together with all of the saints. And uh, are they doing things? Are they just kind of standing around singing? You know, hey, look, we do things here on earth, right? Uh, earth is just a, you know, it's a glimpse. It's a dim glimpse of the life to come and the world to come. So the general assembly of the firstborn. Notice that believers are referred to as the firstborn, which means firstborn in the sense of uh, priority or preeminence. Uh, the church of the firstborn are those who have the preeminence. So we have a, we have a preeminent place in that future kingdom. The church, the bride of Christ, has a, a prominent seat at the feast, the church of the firstborn. So everyone who has ever trusted Christ <coughs> and gone on from this life into the next, they are there. And they're referred to here as those who are registered in heaven registered in heaven, enrolled in heaven, written, their names are written in heaven. You know, think about that for a moment. Uh, have you ever been to some sort of an event where you had to register in advance? Or, or you know, I mean, you, you have to RSVP to things all the time. So, you know, you let people know, yeah, we're going to be here. And they put your name on a uh, list. And when you show up, somebody's there with a list and they check and they say, oh yeah, yeah, you're on the, you're on the list. Yeah, come on in. Sure. And that's the case in heaven as well. Our names are on the list. We know a little more specifically from the book of Revelation that it's really called uh, the Lamb's Book of Life. That's where our names are written. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you know, in some cases, even in our experience here, you know, you might try to get into a place uh, depending on what it is. If your name's not written on the register, you're not getting in. You know, you can protest, you can, you can argue, you can say, oh, but you know, I, look, man, that, you know, they're my best friend. Uh, they would vouch for me and, you know, the, I'm sorry, your name's not on the list. But the wonderful reality is when we trusted in Christ, our names have been written in his book of life. We're on the list. We're the ones who were registered in heaven. And so this is also the, the church, God's saints, his people are there, but also God himself is there. God himself is there, of course. And again, the book of Revelation uh, paints this beautiful picture of us in that place where we see God's face and we're with him. And he will dwell with his people and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain for the former things have passed away. This is just another uh, more, more brief description of what's given to us in more detail in the latter chapters of the book of Revelation. God is there, but notice he refers here to God as the judge of all. 
God, the judge of all. Why does he put the judge of all here in the passage? Because it, it doesn't seem like the emphasis in the passage is on any kind of judgment. He's, he's making a contrast. Uh, the old covenant pronounced judgment. He's talking about the new covenant, but here he says, God, the judge of all. But he's not talking about God, the judge, in the sense of uh, God's final judgment or, or, or God, the judge, in, in you know, condemning sin and, and wickedness. He's talking about God, the judge, in the sense that God's word is the final word. God's approval is the only approval that matters. You know, a, a lot of times we're worried about what people think about us. We're worried about what others think. But you know, there's only one opinion in the end that really matters, and that's God's opinion. He's the judge of all. The idea is that God is there who has the final say-so, whose word is the ultimate word in the universe. God, the judge of all. And then this interesting reference to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now, who could these people be? It's clearly separate from those, uh, the church, the firstborn uh, in heaven. It's a different group. And I think that what he's referring to here are the Old Testament saints. You see, the Old Testament saints, they were just men. They were righteous men. They were men that sought God. But they were men that were not perfected because Christ had not come and died and risen again. But, of course, now, as the author's writing, he has done that. So those just men, their spirits have now been made perfect. They died in an imperfected state, but because of the finished work of Christ now, their spirits have been made perfect. And so I think those are the ones that are being referred to there. And then we come to Jesus is there. And remember, he's reminding them of this. They might be asking the question, well, where is Jesus? We've been trusting Jesus. We put our hope in Jesus, and we thought Jesus was coming back. And, and now, you know, things are rough, and we're being persecuted, and things have become way more difficult since we started following this Jesus. So, so where is Jesus? The author says Jesus is there. He's there in this city, this heavenly city, but he's there as the mediator of the new covenant. He's there, as he's already alluded to, and as he's already specifically stated, he's there making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. He's there as our great high priest, mediating the new covenant. You know, in the end, heaven is heaven because God and Jesus are there. You know, sometimes we almost think of heaven and we, we think of it, as, you know, in, we detach it from the Lord himself. And you know, you think of people, well, you know, I want to go to heaven, which really means I don't want to go to hell. So I want to go to heaven. But know this, heaven is where Jesus is. He is uh, the, he is what makes heaven what it is. And it's him that we will be with. It's him that we will see. You know, my wife and I were having an interesting uh, conversation uh, yesterday, and she, she was telling me in her devotions, she was telling me how she occasionally, she gets just these little sort of glimpses of, 
almost like just a very brief glimpse of Jesus in, in kind of just in his glory and, and kind of just a little fleeting glimpse of heaven. She said it's like a, it's like a, a vista that just opens up ever so briefly and then as quickly as it opened, it kind of closed. But she was, she was saying to me, she said, you know, my great longing these days is to be there. I, I, I want to be there. I want to see Jesus. I want to be in that place. And, and then she said, you know, I think back through my life, you know, as, as a child. And she said, all of the things that I wanted to do. And she said, you know, I know this one is trite, but I really wanted to get my driver's license. Okay, yeah, I get that, you know. You want to get your license. And then she said, and you know, I wanted to get married. And I got married. And then I wanted to have children, and I had children. And, and I wanted to be, uh, you know, a mother. And, and then I wanted to be a grandmother. And, and, you know, all of those things have happened. And she says, and you know, it seems like everything I wanted, it's, it's happened. Now I just want to see Jesus. I want to enter into that fullness. And, you know, she's telling me this and she's there sick. And I'm thinking like, is this, are you telling me you're dying or what's going on? You know, but uh, <laughs> she wasn't, but she was, you know, she was sincere. She's just really sharing her heart. You know, she wants to see the Lord. And that's what it's about. Jesus is there and we're going to see him. I remember years ago reading the uh reading the autobiography of Billy Graham. It's called Just As I Am. It's a great autobiography if you'd like to read a good story. But Billy's just, you know, telling his story of just all, you know, from the time of his conversion to, I think he wrote that, you know, 10 or 15 years ago or whatever. Uh, you know, all that God done in and through his life and everything. And at the end of the book, he just expresses his deep desire. He said, you know, I long for the day when I will look into the eyes of my Savior and be able to just tell him, thank you for saving me. It was a very powerful uh, moment there in the, in the book as he writes that. But that's what everything is about. It's all about Jesus. Heaven is heaven because of Jesus. Because God and Jesus are there. And then there's one other thing he refers to, the blood of sprinkling. The blood of sprinkling. And he makes a contrast between the, the blood of Jesus, that's what he's referring to here, and he said it speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Now, if you remember the story, Abel was slain by his brother, Cain, because Cain was envious of Abel's relationship with God. And so he hated, he hated his brother Abel and he slew him. And then you remember he tries to hide that and God comes to Cain and he says, where's your brother? And Cain says, why are you asking me? I'm not my brother's keeper. And God says, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the earth. And of course, that, that cry was a cry for um, vindication and for judgment to come upon uh, Cain. And it did. He's saying that the blood of Jesus, who was also, think about it, who was also murdered by those who envied, and envied him and hated him, that blood of Jesus is crying out, but it's not crying out for revenge. It's not crying out that God would uh, pour out his wrath. It's actually crying out mercy and forgiveness and grace. It speaks better things 
than the blood of Abel. And so, you see, again, if we put it back in its context, he's appealing to them. He's saying, look, how could you for a minute even think about going back to the old covenant? When you have come to Mount Zion, when you're already a citizen of this kingdom, how could you, how could you want to trade what you presently have and what you're going to ultimately have to go back to something that's not even anything that you actually thought it was. And so he now comes to the final warning. It's the final warning of the epistle. And as you remember, as we've gone through this, there have been several places where he's warned them. It's the same warning all the way through. It's don't draw back. Don't turn back. Don't go back. There's nothing to go back to. And so once again, he says in verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now here comes the exhortation after the warning. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So he comes back around. Notice, he says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. Do you remember how this letter started? The very first verse of the very first chapter of this letter says, God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by or in his son. And so he's taking us right back to there. Don't turn away from him who speaks. He's, he's once, once again, right there, uh, appealing to them to listen. Remember uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, maybe you remember where uh, Jesus took Peter and James and John and they went up on that mount and there Jesus was transfigured and his, uh, his face was altered and you know, his, his, his clothing was, was bright and, and there came a voice out of the cloud that said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And so it's, it's a repeat of the same message over and over again. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. He's saying to them, Jesus is the final message of God. He is the one that we are to listen to. There's no turning back to Moses. The message of Moses was one of condemnation. The message of Moses was temporary. The message of Jesus is one of life and mercy and forgiveness, and it is the final and the ultimate message. And so he warns them. If there was a judgment that came for those who rejected 
Moses, we read about this in the 10th chapter, a similar thing, uh, then how much greater is there gonna be a judgment for those who turn away from him, who speaks from heaven? But now he talks about the shaking. And he's quoting here from the prophet Haggai. And there's a little, little prophecy of Haggai. At the very end of the Old Testament, you have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Those are the last three books of the Old Testament. And all of them are very similar, and they're in a very similar uh, time frame. Uh, but there, Haggai, God speaks through Haggai about a time when he is going to shake all of the nations. So the author says, at one time, God shook the earth. He's talking about Mount Sinai and the things that happened that he already described. But he said there's a future day coming when he's going to shake everything. He's going to shake not just one uh, you know, small location. He's going to shake the entire earth and really uh, the universe itself. There's going to be a universal judgment so that all, can be, all that can be shaken will be shaken. God has declared that he will judge the world and he's going to do it. And some people scoff at that. Some people think that's a joke. Some people just absolutely refuse to believe that that could ever happen. And you know, you can go on in that delusion all you want, but the reality is it is coming. And again, if you think about these people that he's writing to initially, and here's the thing that we have to also think about. They thought mistakenly, but they didn't know they were mistaken. They thought that they could get rid of their trouble by going back to what they had known before, the security and the comfort of Judaism. That's what they were thinking to do. Because after all, this whole Jesus movement thing, this was new. You know, this is only, you know, maybe a, a, a decade old at this point or something like that. <coughs> but with Moses and all those traditions, they go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And we've got this temple that was originally built by Solomon. And then it was renewed by Herod. And surely, you know, this is a permanent structure. There's security there. And we've got our connection to our ancient people, God's people, and surely there's security there. And there's comfort there. And, you know, in their mind, they, they wanted to, to go back to all of that. But you know what they didn't know? They didn't know that in a very short period of time, that would all be obliterated completely. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. The Jewish nation was dispersed throughout the entire world. The temple has never been rebuilt since then. And the Jews partially only came back into the land in 1948 after almost 2,000 years of dispersion. They had no idea that that's what was coming, but that was what was coming. And right as we move on to the 13th chapter, and as we finish up the book, he's going to give them a quick reminder about Jerusalem. He's going to say, here we have no continuing city. The author had prophetic insight into the fact that Jerusalem was not going to be around much longer. So here we are today. And we find ourselves sometimes, and, and, and I cannot tell you how many Christians I know who are toying with 
the idea of going back to the world. Because somehow they've gotten into their mind, you know, God hasn't done for them what they really hoped that he would do. He hasn't fulfilled their promises and dreams and things aren't going the way they thought. And they never really signed up for this, you know, uh, difficulty or these challenges or this persecution or, you know, whatever it is. And they're thinking, you know, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to the comfort and the security, all of the things that I had before. But listen, God's shaken up the whole planet and there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to go. He's going to shake the whole world. And the Bible says that over and over and over. And like I said, you can deny it. You can say it's not going to happen. But you know, the reality is it's already happening. It's already happening. God is shaking up this planet. And international terrorism is one manifestation of it. It's only one manifestation of it. There are so many other things and they're all converging at the same time that just show us that, man, this world that we have known, the things that we have had uh, confidence in, the institutions that we've leaned on, uh, the security of, uh, of a strong economy, all of those kinds of things that have just been so much a part of our experience, especially here in the West and especially in the United States, all of that stuff is rapidly changing right before our eyes because as God said, he's gonna shake the whole world. And in that context there of uh, Haggai chapter two, where the quote comes from, he says, I'm gonna shake the world and they shall come to the desire of all, the na- of all nations. And you know, the, the little reference of the desire of all nations is a reference to the Messiah. That was a messianic term. Because all the nations deep in their heart, they're longing for that Messiah, that, that, um, that uh, you know, universal reign of the Messiah. And uh, the Lord is saying, I'm gonna shake the world. And as a result of it, people are going to come to faith in the Messiah. And this is what we see happening. But listen, God's primary interest is in saving human souls. And the way it's gonna happen in the end times is that he's gonna shake the planet. So there's nothing left for people to trust in but him. Now, obviously not everybody's gonna trust in him. Reading through the book of Revelation just on my own my own personally and, you know, in preparation to teach it here in the new year, it's, it's astounding to me how over and over again we read about these judgments of God and, it, and, it, and then it says about the inhabitants of the earth and they do not repent or give glory to God. And you think, how could it be? How could the human heart be so hard as to right in the face of obvious judgment of God, just, you know, shaking their fist at heaven saying, we're not going to repent. We're not going to bow before you. We're not going to give you the place of glory and honor that you want. So that's what the world's coming down to. It's coming down to two groups of people. Those who are going to continue to shake their fist in God's face and, and, ultimately face his wrath and judgment. And those who are going to look around at everything being uh, unhinged, everything being shaken to the core, and they're going to say, man, I need God. I need something stable. So there's nothing to go back to. Just like they thought, oh, we'll go back to the temple. We'll go back to Jerusalem. Everything will be okay. No, it, it would not be there much longer. And so there's nothing in the world to go back to. But here's the wonderful truth 
The wonderful truth is there is one unshakable thing, and that is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Isn't that great news? We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There's only one thing that's going to last, and that's the kingdom of Christ. That's the only thing. When, it, when, when it's all shaken out, the only thing that's going to be standing is the kingdom of Christ. And all of those wonderful prophecies about his kingdom, that everlasting kingdom of righteousness and peace and prosperity and all those things, they're, they're all going to be fulfilled. But we, we've received it. We're already citizens of it. And so... Since that is the case, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, my translation says, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Probably a better translation is that, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us be grateful is probably a better translation and let us serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. So what are we to do in light of the fact that, that God's shaking the planet? We are to be grateful that we are part of a kingdom that can't be shaken, and we are to give everything that we have in service to that kingdom and to our king. Serving God acceptably with reverence and awe. Acceptably meaning simply serving God in the thing that he's called us to do, whatever that is. That you might find, Paul, Paul said, offer yourself the living sacrifice that you might find out what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That, that which is acceptable to God is, is what, it, what it is that's his will, or what is it that's his will for us. And so that's what he's saying here. Our response, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, is to be grateful and <clears throat> to give ourselves entirely to service to him. And it's time to do that. Because the only safe place to be on the planet, you want to know where it is? The only safe place to be is in the center of God's will. It's the only safe place. There's no safe place anymore. You know? We heard... Uh, the president say last week that, you know, there's no existential threat of terrorism here. And a day later, he was proven wrong. And you know what? It's just the reality. There is no safe place. But, you know, the truth is there's never been a safe place. The world's a dangerous place. But the safe place is in the center of God's will. Because as long as you're there, come what may, even if it's a nuclear bomb dropped on top of you, it doesn't matter because you just go from, you know, you're in the will of God and you just go into the, the greater realization of it. So let us be grateful and let us serve God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. When we see God for who he is, he's a consuming fire. Man, that strikes awe in our hearts. And, you know, the consuming fire, that all depends on, you know, fire, uh, you know, fire is beneficial and it's detrimental. It all depends on the, uh, the substance that it's coming into contact with. 
And for those who are in a place of rejecting Christ and his kingdom, the fire is consuming in the sense that it will destroy utterly all of that. But for those who are his people, we are still being subjected to the consuming fire, but the consuming fire of God for us is refining us. It's purifying us. It's only making us more into the people that God intends us to be for eternity. So as we look at all of these things, there's no turning back. There's nothing to go back to. It's time to give ourselves, if we haven't done so yet, to give ourselves entirely to him And as we're in the world that's being shaken, you know what? It's only going to be shaken more and more as time goes on. So make sure you're in that place that can't be shaken. You're in the center of God's will, and you're part of that unshakable kingdom, which, of course, belongs to everyone who's put their genuine faith and trust in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your promises We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that as we live in such uh, an uncertain situation here in our world, we thank you that we have the certainty of your word to fall back on. And Lord, we thank you that your word is even confirmed by the things that are happening around us because they're exactly the things that you said would happen as the time of your coming drew near. So Lord, help us like the author has been speaking. Help us to realize the greatness and the glory of the things that we presently have, even though we don't realize them fully yet, just to know by faith that we will one day. And Lord, help us to remember that we presently are citizens of a kingdom that can't be shaken. And may we spend our days laboring for that kingdom until you come. In Jesus' name, amen.